Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, head coach at Rugby Coach Weekly. And in this podcast, we are in the presence of sports coaching and performance expertise. Rich Clark has his very own podcast, Rich Performance, which promotes evidence-based practice. He's probably going to tell us what that really means for the dunces like me. He also works with coaches through his role as a lecturer at the University of Gloucestershire. And after working with Gloucester Rugby, now coaches with Athlete Academy. Welcome to the podcast, Rich. Hey, Dan. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Uh, my, my pleasure. Looking forward to uh, delving a little bit deeper into your so well, not, I nearly said so-called expertise, but you've got more <laughs> letters than I've ever seen after anyone's name. So maybe that's is that S and C. Do they just give you letters? Uh, you, if you if you put your mind to it, you can certainly collect a few. And um, I'd like to think that my days of trying to collect them. Um, well, maybe I didn't ever try, but I'd like to think my days of um, of collecting them have, have passed me. But yeah, you can soon get a couple of a uh, couple of letters. Right. I can see a few uh, SSC coaches uh, queuing up at my door to punch me for such <laughs> terrible, terrible things I said. Anyway, <laughs> back into more serious things is uh, now you're currently studying for a PhD investigating performance and injury risk in change of direction maneuvers from a constraints based approach. So I guess this is why you posted a tweet very recently, which caught my attention in which you said, Things I wouldn't use as stimuli in agility training. So you must be quite uh, a bright strength and conditioning coach because you're using things like stimuli rather than stimulus. So I'm impressed by that. So your list was uh, no to whistles or a coach shouting or maths equations or a person who just lifts their arm or lots of other different things. And what was scary for me is I was guilty of all of these. So... The question is, why have I been wrong on all of this? Um, I'll probably start the answer to that by saying you haven't been wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I, there was some deliberate wording, I guess, within that tweet where the things that I probably wouldn't choose to use, but that doesn't mean that they're completely useless. They, they certainly have a place. But the reason why or kind of what I was trying to clarify there is we have to understand that within the agility um within the kind of the idea of transfer of agility training one of the big facets of agility is perception and being able to pick up perceptual cues and being able to visually pick up information which subsequently dictates action and if so can I just yeah so just um and I, I, I know it's not particularly technical language so just give me a for instance from um, a rugby point of view of how that looks yeah sure so if we think let's say the the most common scenario that people probably bring into their mind is a classic one-on-one based scenario so somebody's um, broken the line and is running towards a, a fullback for example and they've got that decision where they have to think am I going to cut left or am I going to cut right And one of the things which is going to impact that decision is the attacker is going to be looking at the defender and is going to be trying to pick up information based upon how the defender is stood, how are they moving, 
uh, what direction are their hips facing, how fast are they going. And it's that information which actually has a really substantial impact on the decision the individual makes, the attacker makes, as well as um, how quickly they can make that decision. So in our training... That will make sense, yes. Cool. So in our training, in order to really optimise somebody's ability to, let's say, be agile or to kind of, you know, to express those kind of things that we, we think we see on the rugby pitch, one of the things that makes people really effective is their ability to pick up that perceptual information. So if we're going to decide, quite rightly, within our training... Agility is important, so I'm going to do some kind of agility-based scenarios, um, whether they are, again, one-on-ones, like with the example we just used. It's a shame to go to the effort of setting those things up and to, to, run, those, to run those situations, but to then remove the specificity or how representative the stimulus is for the athlete who is looking at it and trying to pick up information. So if we choose to use, so let's say a whistle, a whistle is purely a, I heard it, therefore reaction time dictates how quickly I can make a decision. If we use a a coach lifting an arm, then they see it. But the important thing with the perceptual skills is that they aren't generic. So when we start to look at the perceptual or the um, kind of information literature based upon when you look at an individual, rugby players will be very good at looking at other rugby players using rugby movements. Whereas if you took that rugby player out of that scenario and you said, here's somebody serving a tennis ball, they aren't going to be able to pick up any important information in order to help them make decisions quickly and um, and correctly. So it's a shame to have a an agility scenario set up when if it's a team scenario and there's lots of people there and the coach is lifting an arm up, which isn't the stimulus that the player reacts to when they actually play the game, when there's other players, there's other coaches who could be providing a very sport-specific stimulus. So the athlete would be getting a physical um a physical training stimulus from that session, but they'll also be getting a useful perceptual training stimulus from that session. So they're going to start to try and improve that agility from um, from kind of all the directions that can contribute to that performance. So to take take a, take a step back from that, mm-hmm. um, you you take um, the stimulus is there obviously to make you change direction and. We want to have a better stimulus to represent more what the game looks like. How about the player that doesn't have the movement skills in the first place? What what do you do with them in order to get them to the level that they can actually then look and perceive? Because I'm assuming that in order to perceive, you must need to know what you can do once you've seen that that situation appear in front of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I suppose that, you know, it may be important at this point to just point out within our within our kind of traditional definition of agility, there is there's multiple things that contribute to it. So I've just mentioned initially perception. 
and the kind of perceptual cognitive side of yeah. things, which is what the, was influencing my, my, my previous tweet. But then on the other side of things, there are those yeah. physical elements when you need to be able to be um, have good acceleration skills and, and fast in, a, in an acceleration propulsive manner. You need to be able to have good deceleration skills in order to slow down if you need to slow down prior to kind of turning or changing direction or changing your movement path. And then there's those technical positions or advantageous um, positions that we want players to be in when they produce that change of direction. So you're absolutely right. We can, you know, I'm kind of... um, I always try to encourage an understanding of, okay, the perception has to be considered, but the big broad base of the pyramid is a player that's highly athletic, that can produce a a large amount of force in a short amount of time, but then also be able to apply that force into the right direction and to be able to distribute that force throughout their body effectively. So if you've got somebody who isn't particularly what we would consider athletic they don't have those broad movement skills then I would actually say you probably don't want to prioritize agility based training within your sessions because you'll probably get a much greater agility or multi-directional speed improvement from doing some simpler fundamental movement skills learn how to accelerate with good positions learn how to decelerate with good positions and then maybe learn how to accelerate from different starting positions so start 90 degrees from the the desired direction of travel or start facing in the opposite direction when we're still asking them to do very simple things which is produce force and accelerate from a to b in a straight line but that individual is going to learn how to apply that force into different directions, apply it in front of them, apply it behind them, apply it to the side of them. And that's going to be, that's the base of our pyramid, this kind of overall athletic ability to produce force and apply it in, in different, different planes of motion. I understand now that um, a less agile player needs some more fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of your approach, then, are we going away from a constraints-based approach in order to get them up to that level? Or are constraints, and probably you might just need to outline what constraints-based means anyway, is uh, do, do, we, do we need to get rid of constraints-based in order to get them up to a level? Or can we go straight into a constraints-based approach? No, I, th- I think that maybe that's... that's completely the wrong question. No, I, I think that's I think that's a good question. I suppose it's like the traditional: um, do we just teach them in drills, or do we try and put them into a little bit more of a game-based scenario? It's a similar kind of idea, chicken or egg, almost, um, almost example. And, and I would say that is a good question because I think traditionally we think if I'm going to try and get somebody to have, let's say, good acceleration or to be able to accelerate over. 10 meters but by starting not facing the direction that they need to um, they need to face or they need to move into I think we naturally tend to move towards oh okay well I'll go to my traditional um, linear teaching approach of simple movement teach some some positions and we kind of work our way through to something slightly more complex until we see the real thing and we start to kind of 
break things down. I suppose that's the more traditional skill acquisition approach to it. And, and I would just describe the, the um, constraints-based approach from it is that you're trying to get somebody to produce the, the desired positions and the desired kind of outcomes that you want just without that explicit verbal information and instruction. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to put them into a task and you know we have the constraints that the individual brings we have the constraints of the task itself and then we have the constraints of the environment and we're just trying to manipulate any of those things that we can manipulate in order to put somebody into a task and we are going to guide them towards the kind of execution that we think we want to see rather than explicitly try and describe okay put your foot here and put your knee here and this is where you um this is kind of how your body has to has to work together we, we put them into challenges and we facilitate their body working out the right way to to execute things well inevitably i'm going to ask you for an example mm-hmm. so the, the, the example that i'd probably give with that would be something like um, and, and you can argue about kind of effectiveness with things like that. But I would say something like if you're going to ask someone to accelerate to 90 degrees to their left, and let's say that's kind of a very basic thing that somebody needs to be able to do from an agility perspective. OK, so they need to be able to um, push and produce force into multiple planes of motion. I can put them into a body position. So, for example, I might have my inside knee on the floor and I might have my outside foot on the ground so I'm in this kind of 90 degree hip flexion and 90 degree knee flexion position there's the one one kneel um one kind of leg kneeling position and I could put them there and I can then say get to this um to this cone or get to this opposing player as fast as you can and because I've put them in a, a position where their center of mass is lower I've put them in a position where their their foot that they need to push off from is already planted and in the right place the movement that they will then use to accelerate over those five meters is going to look probably much more like what I want it to look without me standing there and saying this is how I want you to do it. And if I just ask them to, okay, just stand here and, and relax and just stand in this kind of feet underneath hips position. And I said, when I say go, I want you to accelerate to your left and I want you to move five meters until you reach um, this kind of, you know, the opposition or you, try, or you reach a cone. I'm probably going to see a very, very mixed way of doing it. Whereas if I just say into this half kneeling position, that restricts the number of ways that they can complete that task. And then I already see a, a more effective position that I want them to train in without all of that explicit verbal instruction. The, the task has dictated the, the, the method that they might use to complete it a little bit more. Okay, that, and that makes sense. And I can see how the player will feel that something's happening. What's the evidence that suggests that actually makes them change uh leads to um a better outcome for them i'm not doubting it i'm just wondering what the evidence is yeah it's it's i suppose within the if we if we're applying it and looking for the evidence in maybe a kind of acceleration or in this kind of change of direction realm i guess um then i don't think actually 
we've ever really specifically looked for an evidence in that kind of task. But there's lots that show how people can find their way to an, an effective method of execution without having to have lots and lots of instructions. So, so as, as an example, one of the ways, which is, is some, somewhat similar, um, so there's a concept called differential learning, which um, there's papers that have used what they would call differential learning, which is basically learning with lots and lots of variation. So deliberately trying to get good at a task by doing that task in loads and loads of different different variations of it okay so as an example um i think like the ones that are coming to my mind is the things with like speed skating um i think there's one with kind of javelin and things like that when actually you can i could stand there and i could say okay in order to effectively get from a to b in this speed skating task this is how you do it this is the instructions i need to give you you need to do this with your left foot this with your right foot but actually on the opposite end of that that spectrum we can just say, okay, I want you to start, but I want you to start, and this time I want you to sprint with without your arms, or this time I want you to sprint with um, a completely different starting stance, or this time I want you to sprint with one arm above your head in the air all the time. And just variation like that can be just as, if not more effective at times, at getting somebody better or faster at something than actually our constant verbal traditional instruction so the, the constraints based stuff i would say have got is going to have similarities to that because what you're trying to do is you're not trying to dictate to them how they are going to perform this you're just going to put them into into challenges where they are going to be forced to explore the way they execute it and if they've got the right feedback then they will then start to work out that actually, oh, this is a really good, really effective way to um, to perform this task, and they will probably work their way towards a slightly more um, more effective or efficient method of method of execution. But you know, you're absolutely um, right to kind of ask that question because I think that you could say that that's relatively contentious and you could find scenarios where that does work and you could find lots of scenarios where that doesn't work. But I think that's an interesting way, especially within the change of direction and agility area to think about trying to develop and trying to, um, trying to teach things because movements at, at high speed are very, very difficult to control. The, you know, the athlete isn't going to be in, in, in conscious control of their movements the entire time. The, the scenario that they're put in has got so many interacting factors that the movement that they produce is just going to be what they feel is the most natural to satisfy those factors. So can we start to use some of those ideas and concepts in our, in our training to actually influence our kind of overall multidirectional performance without thinking we need to just teach them a perfect technique of something and a perfect technique of something else um, although I think there's there's still some some place for that kind of that kind of styled progression now you're talking about influences and all the influences you've talked about so far tend to be with your own body so your kneeling position or you're holding your arm in a certain way or there is a constraint on the direction of the movement 
I'm going to sort of throw in perhaps a controversial area, which is the use of ladders, mm-hmm. uh, agility ladders. <laughs> yep. Now, I've got a view on this, which is probably that I think they're not such a good idea. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what your thought is. I'm um, interested to hear. I, I, I would tend to agree. I'd like to say I try and stay relatively neutral with things like that do do again do they have their place somewhere um, um yes i think they they can i, I think you could lose you can use a ladder uh, with people who are maybe very unathletic to encourage an active foot strike or encourage them to be able to frequently move their base of support around underneath them and i think those two things are quite important but the the benefit of that is one very very short-lived and two, where ladders get a bad name, and quite rightly, is we call them speed ladders and agility ladders, when actually the, the fundamental underpinning of speed and agility is to produce force and to produce lots of it in very short spaces of time. So having loads of really fast, rapid, tiny foot strikes when your body doesn't move anywhere isn't training anybody to produce lots of force very quickly. So, you know, can we can we use them? Can they go into a session somewhere? And I was like, they can if you want, but let's just be be really clear about the rationale of why you're using them. They aren't going to make somebody quicker. They aren't going to make somebody more agile, apart from in apart from for maybe a very, very small reason, which is probably short-lived and has short implications or small implications anyway. So they just, they just don't act as an effective method to teach somebody to produce lots of force in multiple directions in short periods of time because you never move anywhere. You stand in one place and your feet move around lots. So then what is your sort of go-to first up exercise? I've, I've come away from this podcast. I, I've thrown my ladders, if I ever had them, in the bin. And I'm going to say, right, guys, we're now going to do this. So my go-to number one exercise is going to be? I would probably go with, I would always start with acceleration. There's, from a, from a change of direction perspective, you have to, to change direction but actually, once you've changed direction, you're doing that because you've got to accelerate into a new direction and you've got to try and exploit the space that you've found. So one of the simplest ways to try and have a big impact on that is going to be short distance sprints when you're going to challenge people to, for, to start from different positions. So not just to try and display perfect acceleration technique when they start in a crouch position and they try and go in a straight line, but can we just encourage people to be able to produce force and to move their, their, um, their body or their center of mass really quickly but just from slightly different angles and slightly different positions, I think that's a really effective way to start. Maybe there's a um, some, some variation in training effect there, which helps the overall technical factors. But there's also of an element of teaching people to push to the left, push to the right, push behind them, and then to go into that good kind of effective acceleration position and i think that there's a lot of a lot of bang for your buck for that kind of simple simple setup okay and that makes sense and i think quite a few coaches probably think well they might have done those things before so it's in uh, in uh when we talked before the podcast uh one of the things you said was that probably coaches aren't 
far off some okay coaching here. So it's not as not as if they've got to tear up what they've been doing. It's just knowing why you're doing it and what the outcomes are. Would yeah, that, you say that was pretty much the case. Yeah, absolutely. So, so taking that the, the example drill that I just outlined there is that we're just doing really short sprints and we're just trying to get people to accelerate from different starting positions and to push in different directions. You can you, that's a that's a pre-planned, um, let's say on paper a non-agility based piece of training okay it's just linear acceleration um that's got a multi-directional component to it okay so really powerful but maybe not what we would consider agility but you could if you're doing that then firstly brilliant that's you know that's got a really strong place but we can very quickly um improve that or in my opinion improve that by adding a little bit more of a reactive component with a sport specific stimulus so as an example you might have it might become a little bit competitive um, and again you could argue what well, does the competition mean that the way they're executing things becomes really sloppy and you have to kind of make your own coaching judgment judgment on that but you could make it competitive people in pairs and they are both let's say in that half kneeling position that i described earlier they're facing each other one's got to go to their right to accelerate the other one's got to go to their left so they're both going to be sprinting eventually in the same direction but you just have you just dictate one person is going to lead and then one person is going to perceive that tends to be the way that i I describe it there's a leader and there's a perceiver and you all you would simply say is you are going to have right the leader you can begin to accelerate whenever you want and then the perceiver you have to recognize when the individual is going to accelerate and react to their movement and race them to a to a finish point and that's taking a a pre-planned dominantly straight line um drill adding a sport specific and you know whether we how how sport specific again is debatable but at least it's a human doing an athletic movement um so that's taking a, a little bit more of a sport specific stimulus where you're looking at human movement and all of a sudden pre-planned has become a little bit more perceptually beneficial and it's become potentially a little bit more engaging for the group of the group of athletes that you've got and it's starting to potentially have some some carryover into what we might consider later later agility work and i think you can make really small changes like that and then it's just about understanding how you might slowly increase the complexity of that stimulus so of the kind of the perceptive stimulus that the um that the perceiver is looking at so the the example of that might be if i'm not very good at perceptively looking at somebody and trying to work out what movements they are they are using or what information that's giving me the simplest way for me to learn that is to look at somebody who is stood statically and I know when they're going to, sorry, I know where they're going to go. So I know what direction. I just don't know when. And if, if you can kind of, again, you would coach and you would kind of encourage the individuals to kind of focus their attention onto certain things with that, 
um, from that person, or at least encourage them to think about what are they looking at? What's giving them the information? Is it looking at their feet that's helping? Is it looking at their torso that's helping? And just kind of make sure that their attention's in the right place. And they could go from looking at somebody who is static and they know where they're going to go. They just don't know when. Then they might look at somebody who's static and they know when they're going to go, but they don't know where. So now they have to pick up the right information to work out, are you going to sprint left? Are you going to sprint right? And then that all of that is still a um, can still have a good physical stimulus of straight line acceleration, which I think is our, is our kind of underpinning building blocks, other than obviously having a good um, some good strength training within a, within a program. And then all of a sudden, all the time we've developed some linear acceleration, um, ask them to stop at a line after their sprint, there's some deceleration work in there. But they're doing that while they are developing their ability to look at another player and to think, this is how players move. This is what gives me the right information. I'm looking for a foot strike. or I'm looking for a, a hip position. And that's a really simple addition, which is why if you're doing that and you're saying everybody sprint to the left on my whistle, you're, you're kind of doing all the same things of making it reactive, but they aren't learning anything from the whistle. And you can just make it a little bit more interactive and they can genuinely learn things which have um, which has a massive performance impact. There's some work with um, the perceptual or the decision-making side of things where the difference between high-level players and lower-level players, and I think this is rugby league, I, I might be wrong, but there's a lot of work in the rugby league realm. The difference between high-level players and low-level players in how quickly they pick up the information of their opposing player in order to make a decision can be somewhere between 250 and 300 milliseconds which in sport is a huge amount of time. So if we've got the opportunity to try and get them better at that, while also developing some of these physical um, kind of fundamentals and physical basics, then I, I personally see that as a, as a huge missed opportunity. If you want to use a whistle or a hand, then, you know, you're kind of you're 90% there, but just, just think about what the stimulus is. The stimulus has got to be specific for it to be, it to be useful for transfer later. So, I mean, the big takeout is to try and make it realistic, mm. um, and, but also to think about why they're doing it and uh, the sort of things you're looking for, which is that acceleration and also that deceleration, which is something I, I do remember from the little I remember about agility training. You've got to learn to stop as well mm-hmm. and uh, to be able to change directions. So I'm also thinking that often we're starting to go into the pre-season phase of uh, training for some teams and they'll be running up and down sand dunes all the time yeah is that um is that a valid method of agility or is that just a coach enjoying watching the pain um, I think it's a it's a popular method of training, and I think it's it's got a good place. But again, you just have to boil down to what for what reason are you using it? So people use things like that, so sand dunes or hill running. There's you can use that for for speed development because having the the angle of the ground forces you to use some good positions with your with your lower limb. It forces you to produce more force because you're going to start to move yourself uphill a little bit and if, if you think about 
if you watched somebody run up a hill or sprint up a hill is probably the better term. If you watched somebody sprint up a hill and actually you were able to take that picture and turn it on its side so that the hill was now level with the natural playing ground, the positions that that athlete would be using to sprint up that hill would probably be quite good acceleration positions. So that's one of the reasons why that tends to be used if it's used from a for a speed and an acceleration adaptation point of view so is that agility no but is it going to help people or is it going to be developing one of the facets which is going to go into our agility mix to potentially have some positive performance improvements that yes it probably will but people also use those kind of um, those kind of drills, so sand dunes or hill running for conditioning-based reasons, mm, so yeah. much higher volume, higher repetition, much more of a cardiovascular um, requirement. Um, and sometimes I'm sure there's an element of a coach just, yeah, this is, you know, there's a, I'm sure people think about it from a mental toughness point of view. It's maybe a day out yeah. to go to the local sand dune and, and um, yeah, maybe a bit more of a traditional side of things. But that, that certainly can have its place. It's just not quote unquote agility but it potentially contributes to overall athleticism which could later be transferred into more kind of agility based scenarios okay then how about jumping off boxes and then sprinting away yeah that's you know that can have its place again it's important to always think about for what or what is the rationale for that drill to be used within the training session so one of the reasons that people would tend to use that drill as an example, that might not be the reasons that, that we are um, always seeing, but if we step off a box, I've got to, my body is going to fly through the air, gravity is going to accelerate me to the floor, which means that when I hit the ground, I'm going to have a much higher level of force to have to deal with. So that's going to have a physical or a physiological adaptation to it, having to deal with more force because of the acceleration from gravity but I'm also going to have to deal with that force and learn to apply that force or to um, deal with the force in a vertical motion because that's stepping off the box you're falling vertically towards the ground and then go straight into a sprint which involves producing or transferring that force into um, pushing behind me so posterior kind of based based ground reaction force as we would describe that so you can put things like that in and they can be done for a let's say a physical overload perspective i'm trying to get the system to have more of a capacity to do things they could also be used for a skill overload perspective or for a skill kind of challenge perspective so i'm learning to apply something rather than just learning to um produce more of it so i'm learning to apply force slightly better rather than just produce more force within within that drill and, and actually both of those so the the stepping off a box example you just used and the the hill based example that you just lose used both of those are loosely examples of a constraints-based approach to be able to to do something less so the box the box probably isn't a great version but the hill is quite a good version where you're asking somebody to go up a hill because of the environment and because of the fact that you're going up a hill which might be 30 degrees in incline. 
I'm going to use a completely different running technique than what I might use if the ground is flat and you've not had to tell me anything about how to do it. I've just had to adapt to what's in front of me. So it's that that's that a really simple example, actually. So well done for well done for bringing it up. I'm sure that was deliberate, Dan. That's um, a really simple example, actually, of, you know, we can get people to change the way they do things and to get them to be more effective at things without having that constant, now do this, do this, verbal, explicit information, which sometimes isn't all isn't all that effective. But, you know, I suppose without kind of going off on back into kind of the, that tangent a little bit, the stepping off a box and the hill and kind of different drills it's all about knowing i am using this drill or this scenario because it is going to help me develop or help the athlete develop x or y and that might be a physical capacity that might be a a skill or a movement skill execution element to it and i think it's that you know the same with the agility examples of I'm using a ladder because it's going to help this and that and if you know what your what your athlete's weakest point is where their where is um where their biggest opportunity for development is then there's there's a thousand different methods that you can use that could potentially have an overall transfer to um an agility based multi-directional speed game transfer because there's so much that goes into that that kind of definition of, of what we might might consider an agile player and, and the idea i'm getting now is um, just trying to picture how i would now take this forward so let us say uh, i could mix it up i could start perhaps with um lots of stimulus in front of the players so they might be trying to beat another player one-on-one or using some static players initially who they've then got to read when they've got to move we could have little mm-hmm. competitions then i might uh, depending on the players might take them back into um when they're working individually but i'm putting constraints on them they may have to turn corners they may have different starting positions and then i can pull them back into more realistic game game related ideas and the the couple of the sort of technical key things i'm suggesting are that we're looking at acceleration and deceleration. So it's not it's not the number of times your feet tap the floor, mm-hmm. it's the force that they, they're driving off the ground. Is that is that, is that yeah, I, I think um, that's a something of a summary of it? Yeah, I think that's a really nice little little summary. I, I would agree with I would agree with all of that. And I think you touched on something which is really um, really important to consider. So like you said, we've, the examples of the drills that we've just given, some of them are for physical benefit reasons. Other, the, other, other ones could be structured more for perceptual benefit reasons. And, you know, you mentioned there slowly then getting more towards something that looks more and more like the game. And I think that's absolutely right. You, we have to, we develop, we can develop our physical capacities. I've got to develop those in a more specific way so that people can apply them effectively within a um, more specific movement and the same thing with the perceptual side of things I can develop an ability to look at a player read body movements and to pick up information very early and to also not be fooled by deceptive information that's that's a part of it as well and again that has to slowly move its way up um, the specificity continuum slowly become more representative so that 
I've gone from looking at somebody static, which is a really simple um, example, a really simple version. Then they're moving. Then maybe there's two defenders. Then maybe there's two defenders, but I'm part of an attacking team. And then maybe there's much more of a chaotic environment when it's a um, a small-sided game kind of based scenario. And there's now also a technical, tactical or pattern recognition, situational awareness element to it. And we just slowly kind of build that complexity up. And I think at the moment, coaches do a, um, from kind of rugby coaches as an example, um, do a really good job at the more complex technical, tactical, um, team cohesion, movement um, kind of end of things. And then maybe we've got the, the conditioning coaches that do a really good job of the physical side of things. But there's just this big kind of, um, in my you know in my eyes a big gulf in the middle when both people kind of need to move um, away from maybe their normal structures or or normal styles of practice for what could be quite quite substantial substantial benefit but it, you know it takes both ends to help educate each other um, and both ends to kind of feed into session design to really optimize that as a that as a process yeah, there's going to inevitably there's going to be some disagreements, some rough edges, mm-hmm. and things are developing all the time. One of one of the things you mentioned in there, you did talk about perception, but also deception, or deception, deception, yep. deception, and the way that agility can work in that way. I mean, there's often nothing better than seeing a player sit another player down and then completely, yeah, um, outwit them, which is one of the great moments in rugby. Um, and obviously agility helps with that. So I suppose um, you're looking at ways to deceive as well as ways to just simply beat someone with good footwork. And probably, I mean, that's, that is a, that's a question for another time because uh, Rich, you have given us an enormous amount of information um, and uh, you haven't just done it by gathering quite a lot of letters behind your name. There's a, there's a lot of sound theory behind it. So, just tell us where we can find out more about what you do and dig a little bit deeper into the areas that you're studying. Cool. Yeah. The easiest way is probably kind of just look me up on Twitter. Uh, I tend to be quite active and um, I'm always pretty transparent and happy to share opinions and views and to, to kind of learn from anybody else that can feed in um, but i'm at rich underscore perform on on twitter um, as you mentioned earlier I, I host my own podcast um which is the rich performance podcast it stands for researching coaching and human performance so if you've got a um a physical That's convenient that your, your parents named you after all those like, uh, important i would I was brainstorming. I came up with that, and I thought it was my lucky day. I thought yeah. that's that's worked so out. So, what's lovely. the A R and D stand for then? Um, that's um, you know that's that's a question for another day. I think Dan, you know, we <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely no idea. We we won't mention that, but but yeah, I, I sorry, I, I host that as a podcast. Deception, um, B for deception. I've, they were giving oh, deception. You, maybe there's something in that, you know. Maybe action, there is. action, deception, and recognition. Yeah. There we are. You see, this that's for free. That's for free, though. Nice. Yeah, I won't. Yeah, there's no royalties to come from that. I'm afraid. So, uh, um, but you know, you can you can have a look at that as a podcast if you have an interest in the um, kind of slightly more conditioning focused but obviously you know very much coaching related as well um, side of, of human human performance um, I have a website which is richperformance.co.uk 
um, which is pretty sparse at the moment, mainly to host the to host the podcast. But over time, that's going to slowly get um, more populated, and it'll probably become mostly more populated with the agility change of direction based um based work that i kind of do for my phd and um where kind of most of my most of my interest is so yeah those are probably the three three best ways yeah and i would uh, recommend those who are particularly interested in this area and got a bit of an snc um part to their their own coaching is that uh, looking at the podcast there's a whole host of links underneath the podcasts I've seen, which uh, gives you sort of more, more to think about, more to delve into, which is the, the, I think sometimes it's very easy to chat about these things and not really reference the enormous amount of work which you and others have put into it. So, Rich, that was brilliant. And um, uh, you, you've taught very plainly try and avoided a lot of the jargon which often comes along with these uh, these areas. And I think one of the things which comes across to me is that agility is accessible to coaches. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily need to have um, an enormous understanding of the exact techniques to make some progress. I'm not saying that you, you can therefore become an agility expert without any technical expertise, but it's refreshing to hear that. But then I sense also there are some things that we not necessarily need to avoid, but do less of and other things we need to do more of. So, Rich, that's that's been very helpful for me. You've given me some great ideas to take forward. So thank you very much for your very valuable time. It's okay, no problems. And uh, uh, do check up Rich's website. And uh, if you want to find out more uh, about the podcast we do or all the other podcasts, uh, go over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the podcast button. But that is all this podcast and look forward to speaking again to you all soon bye-bye thanks for listening to the rugby coach weekly podcast if you want to hear more podcasts head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed we look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby sport and learning